Father, if, if we were to give an account for our sins, we could not stand. But because of Jesus, we will one day stand in your presence forever, welcomed, loved, forgiven, because it doesn't matter the amount of sins that we have committed. Jesus' mercy is always more. Thank you. May we celebrate that truth this morning, even in how we listen to your word. This is a difficult text we're going to unpack today. And so I need your help for clarity. I need you to give your people ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to love so that when we leave this place this morning, we walk out of this room having fallen deeper in love with Christ and thinking higher thoughts of him. So show us the grace and the glory of Jesus, I pray. In his name I ask, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I love singing with you. you, you you've done so well this morning singing, and it is, man, they, they, there's a statement in preaching circles that if you can't preach after a time of worship like that, then your wood's wet. Some of you find that funny. Some of you don't. I would encourage you and invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 11 this morning. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have one for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible beneath you in the hymnal rack, and we'll be on page 1007 in the church Bibles. Now, let me just say it's been three weeks since I've preached, so there's a part of me that feels like this is the very first time. And I kind of don't like that feeling, but kind of do like that feeling. But it's been a privilege to sit alongside of you and to be preached at. I need that. I'm not above that. But I also love the opportunity to open God's word and not preach at you, but preach God's word to you. We're picking up the text where we left off on Palm Sunday three weeks ago. Um, in Mark's gospel, as we've worked our way verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the first almost 11 chapters now, we've entitled this series, Life on Purpose. Now, here's what I want you to get right up front here, that as we make our way to the cross following Jesus, the cross and the purpose for which Jesus has come to die on the cross is becoming, becoming more and more clear to us. What we're going to read this morning, beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11, is Jesus living life on purpose, taking control of the temple as a sign of what he will do on the cross, which is now just four days away. Jesus living his life on purpose and then calling us as we trust in him and believe on him and follow him to live our lives embracing his purpose for us. Beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. 
On the following day, that is on Monday after Palm Sunday, when Jesus and his disciples came from Bethany, he was, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, that is, passed by that fig tree, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then if you're reading from a King James Version, you'll see verse 26 there, which essentially says the same thing as verse 25, just from the negative perspective. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is the word of our God for us this morning. It's all about what Jesus thinks of the show. Now, how many of you were around in the 1950s? Raise your hand. All right, so I see two teenage boys raising their hands over here. I, okay, so I see a lot more kids raising their hands than adults. So obviously, we should probably just shut down this text and talk about telling the truth. <laughs> All about the show. That is a phrase that describes the Ford Edsel. If you look at the screen, there is the Ford Edsel. How many of you have heard of the Ford Edsel before today? All right, so the Ford Edsel, of course, was produced by the Ford Motor Company, but only between the years of 1958 and 1960. This vehicle is known as one of the biggest busts in automobile history. And the issue with the Edsel wasn't what you could see on the outside because it looks beautiful. The problem was what you couldn't see on the inside. It had lots of show, but no go. And that's a pretty good description of a danger that we all face. And not just for us individually, but for us collectively as a church. Where the Christian life and the Christian church becomes all about the show. Where life becomes a kind of production of keeping up appearances with going through the motions kind of living and worship. 
We can be spiritually active and seemingly healthy and very busy. We can come to church weekly and give a generous offering and serve faithfully in the children's ministry. We can read our Bible daily and pray regularly. We can do all the things God has commanded from us in worship while actually leaving God out of worship. And that isn't just eternally dangerous. It's eternally deadly, as we see right here in Mark chapter 11, where it's Passover week in Israel. So it's the big worship week of the year with two and a half million Jews descending upon Jerusalem to offer sacrifice at the temple. It's going to be quite the show. Lambs will be slaughtered, prayers will be prayed, songs will be sung, offerings will be given. It will have all the appearances of worship, but it will lack the substance and the heart of worship. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Jesus hates the show. He hates the hypocrisy of empty like soap bubbles kind of heartless worship. And that's why the big idea of this text in Mark 11 is that genuine worship is driven by God's grace alone and given to God's glory alone. Now, if we're really going to get that, We've got to remember what's just gone down in Jerusalem on Sunday. Where Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the crowds are crying out in worship, bowing before him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It all looks so perfect. The worship so genuine. But by Sunday evening, The shouts of worship have been replaced with the silence of disappointment. The crowds have gone home because Jesus won't be their kind of king. He isn't going to ride into town to free them from Rome. He's going to ride into town to free them from sin. And they can't see that. They don't get that. And that's why nobody is around on Sunday evening when Jesus heads to the temple and looks around in the temple at everything. He's taking inventory of the temple as it's being prepped for Passover. And Mark tells us that in verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. So that we know that what Jesus does on Monday isn't just some random reaction by Jesus. It's, instead, it's a calculated response from Jesus. And so our job this morning is to do a little Sherlock Holmes and to make the connections between what happens in the temple on Sunday evening and what happens on the way to the temple and in the temple on Monday morning. Because Jesus and his disciples have spent the night in Bethany, probably at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and now they're taking off on that three-mile trek up the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem. The cross is just four days away now. But Jesus isn't dialing it in. He isn't coasting to the cross. He's going to finish 
and finish strong. He's got a lot of work left to do with his disciples. And that's why Mark chapters 11 through 15 are all about the final five days of Jesus' ministry. Five chapters, five days. Nearly one-third of Mark's gospel is given to the Passion Week because during this week, Jesus is going to say and do some really significant stuff. And it all begins with a fig tree on Monday morning. It all begins with Jesus feeling what some of you are feeling right now. He's hungry. How many of you are hungry this morning? How many of you skipped breakfast this morning? So just in case you're wondering, you may wonder, what does Pastor Ken eat on Sunday mornings before he gets to the church and reviews and everything? Anybody ever wonder that? Okay, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to tell you anyway, all right? So on Sunday mornings, I have a protein bar and a banana. My stomach is angry right now. It's wanting more. And as this scene opens, I love it that Jesus knows what it is to be hungry. That he's truly human in every way. So that when he is walking with his disciples up the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, his stomach is growling and grumbling because evidently he's skipped breakfast, which we know is the most important what? The most important meal of the day. And so Jesus is thinking about the same kind of things that we think about. He's thinking about food, especially if you're a guy. And that's when a fig tree alongside the road catches its eye, catches his eye. It's, it's probably not the only fig tree here, but Jesus notices this particular tree because it's leafed out so beautifully. It looks so strong and healthy and fruitful. But remember the Edsel. Remember that appearances can be deceiving, that things aren't always as they seem, because when Jesus arrives at the tree, he discovers that it's all show and no go. It's fruitless and figless. And maybe we're thinking, you know, Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised by this, because what does Mark say right here? He says, it isn't fig season. So what's going on? You ever ask questions like that when you're reading the Bible? I, I hope you do. We should wonder this. We should ask this question, why is Jesus, why does he curse this fig tree when it isn't even fig season? Now, there's something we need to know about the fig tree. Any, any of you have fig trees at home? Anybody have a fig tree in their yard? Okay, a fake one? Okay, so it's not going to bear fruit. Um, we don't either. We don't have a fig tree at home. And so I needed to do, and I did do some fig tree research, which for those of you who know, that's dendrology, the study of trees. And the fig is not ripe until late July or early August. And here, it's late March or early April. But did you know that on a fig tree, the fruit appears just before the leaf appears. Now, that early fruit is going to be bitter rather than sweet, but we're told two different times in the Old Testament book of Hosea that that early fruit is edible, which means this tree has an issue. 
it has leaves, but no fruit at all, which is why Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And boom. Immediately, that's the beginning of the end for this little fig tree because verse 20 tells us later in the text that when Jesus and the disciples walk by the tree the next morning, it's already dead. 24 hours. It's totally dead. Now, trees die all the time. How many of you have had a tree in your yard die? We have two large holes in our yard in Elgin where ash trees once stood, before the emerald ash borer got a hold of them and killed them from the top down, because that's how trees die. The leaves in the top begin to turn brown and yellow, and then slowly death takes hold of that tree as it works its way down, finally all the way to the roots. But not this fig tree. This fig tree does not die from the top down. It dies from the roots up. And that's what catches Peter's attention. And so he says in verse 21 or 22, let's, Jesus, Jesus, look, look at that. The fig tree you cursed just 24 hours ago is already withered away. Even the roots. Okay, so let's step back from this scene for a moment. Let's Let's stop the play-by-play for a moment, and let's talk about why Jesus curses the fig tree. This is the most misunderstood miracle Jesus ever performs, because it's also the only destructive miracle Jesus ever performs. Jesus doesn't go around zapping unkind people with leprosy. He doesn't break the legs of stubborn donkeys and turn the Pharisees' wine into water. He doesn't do those things. This is a a one-of-a-kind miracle with a -a one-of-a-kind purpose. It's actually a living parable. It's a real-world, real-life object lesson. You see, the tree's destruction sets the stage for Jesus' instruction. And it's important that we get that because some people accuse Jesus of being impetuous here, of flying off the handle here, of losing it here, of blowing his top and taking it out on the tree. He's a bit testy and a little feisty. You know, with the cross four days away, he isn't sleeping well, and then he misses breakfast, and so he's angry. And he takes it out on this poor little fig tree. But is that true? Because let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus needs this fig tree to provide him food for breakfast? Has Jesus ever created food? Yes. Enough food to feed thousands of people in a single sitting? Yes. So Jesus doesn't need this fig tree for food. He's using the fig tree to teach. And that's why verse 14 says that Jesus does not curse this tree under his breath. He says it loud and clear for all to hear. Because the disciples would know that in the Old Testament, the fig tree is a metaphor for Israel. They would know that the whole purpose of a fig tree isn't for its leaves to give shade, but for its branches to bear fruit. 
And that's the picture Jesus is teaching. What's true of this tree is true of the temple and the worship that's going on there. It's all about the leaves, all about the show, all about how the tree looks rather than the fruit the tree bears. It's all about the external rather than the internal. But that isn't just a danger for Israel at the temple. That's a danger for us in the church. Are we, are we all about the leaves rather than the fruit? Are we all about keeping up appearances rather than worshiping from our hearts? Why do we do what we do? Are we driven by God's grace and given to God's glory in real life? You say, well, Pastor Ken, I sang really loudly this morning. I've already dropped my offering in one of the offering boxes this morning. I prayed on my way to church this morning. Listen, worship isn't relegated to something we do at this time in this place on Sunday mornings. All of life is worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you are, whomever you're with, whatever you're doing. And so that affects then, because all of life is worship. It affects how you treat that waiter or waitress when your food is slow in coming. It affects whether or not you disclose that unreported income to your tax tax preparer. And if you don't, you might have a tax repairer. Young people, it's about how you show respect to that teacher that no one likes and the effort you give in completing those not-so-fun math assignments. It's about how patient you are with that hard-to-love coworker or that cranky boss. It's about what we do with our free time and with our extra money. All of that is all about worship because all of life is worship. It's about who or what has your heart. And that's why worship problems, they take root on the inside long before they ever show up on the outside. And so it's possible to do what Israel's doing at the temple. It's possible to be this fig tree. It's possible to play the part of a worshiper externally while actually forsaking God internally. And that's precisely what Jesus finds when he enters the temple with his disciples. Listen, this is the worship epicenter of Israel where so many people are engaging in so much religious activity. And in the middle of all this hustle and bustle, it would be easy to miss the one thing that's missing. But that's why we've got to be like Sherlock Holmes. So we don't miss the one thing that's missing. Because the one thing that's missing is the most important thing. God has left the building. Passover is no longer about celebrating Him 
The one who freed his people from Egypt with his strong arm. Now, Passover is nothing more than a week-long commercialized convention complete with vendors and booths and kiosks that are teeming with massive amounts of Passover swag. Get your t-shirt here. Get your souvenir here. Take home a little, a little lamb. But that's not all. Because if you would have brought your own lamb from your own home to offer as a sacrifice at the temple, it would have to be inspected by a priest there in the temple. And he could fail your lamb for any reason. And then you'd be forced to purchase a lamb from the vendors there in the temple at, get this, up to ten times the price, up to ten times the fair market value. So this is both figuratively and literally the fleecing of Israel. And then if you were a male 30 years of age or older, you would be required to pay a half shekel temple tax just to participate in Passover week. And you couldn't pay with the coins you had in your pocket, the Roman coins. You'd have to go to one of the currency exchange booths where you'd be forced to pay a 25% markup just to pay with Jewish coins. And so between the lambs and the taxes and the swag, this is a major moneymaker for the Jewish religious elite. The only thing I know to compare it to is a banner day on Wall Street with brokers and traders yelling across the New York Stock Exchange, yelling instructions, buying and selling, and all the ticker tape that's littering the floor, and millions and billions of dollars changing hands. It is into this kind of scene, this kind of super chaotic and frenzied scene that Jesus walks into on Monday morning, his father's house, and his heart not only hurts, it breaks. This is never what the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer, not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. But it's not that at all. Because God's gone missing from all the worship. And so Jesus brings the hammer down. He's, he's, he's chasing out those who bought and those who sold. He's overturning tables and throwing chairs. And instantly the money stops flowing. The animals start scurrying. Nobody's moving or talking. Suddenly it is deathly quiet. Jesus has shut it all. Not because he's lost his cool. Not because he's flying off the handle. But because of what Psalm 69 verse 9 says. A prophecy about himself. Zeal, Father. Zeal for your house. Your glory. Has consumed me. Do we feel that way? About God's glory? What consumes us?
What are we zealous for? For Jesus. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what motivates Jesus to take this radical action and to literally shut down the temple. He is so driven by his Father's grace and given to his Father's glory. That's what he does. But that's, listen, that's not all that's happening here. And so often I think we miss this. Because there's something bigger and better happening. Kind of lurking initially beneath the surface. But Psalm 69 verse 9 doesn't end with the words, zeal for your house has consumed me. It concludes with, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen to me. Do you see the love of Jesus here? The grace of Jesus here? He shuts down the temple, not just because of his great zeal for his Father's glory, but because of his great love for the people. So much so that he won't just take control of the temple on Monday. He will die on a cross on Friday where the reproaches of those who have reproached the Father will fall upon him. So don't miss that here. Jesus is going to take upon himself the sins that are being committed here. The sins that he's stepping in to stop. And then he will step in to save those from the reproaches of the sins that they are committing. He will die on the cross as though he himself had made a mockery of God's house. As if he had scorned the Father's honor. As if he was playing games in the Father's house. He becomes the reproached one for us. He steps in between the holy righteous wrath of God and our reproach for our sins and becomes the reproached one. So don't just see the holy, righteous anger of Jesus here. Because that's not all that is here. See the deep, deep love of Jesus here. It's Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Listen, it's the only way that any of us could come into the Father's house. It's the only way any of us could do what we were created to do forever and ever in worshiping the Father in the Father's house. It's the only way. Jesus has to step between. You believe that? Are you trusting in the one who's done that for sinners like you and me? It's the only way any of us could be forgiven of our sins. It's the only way any of us could come to God. That's why 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous in the place of the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, into the Father's house, into the Father's family, to worship him forever. 
That's why Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any of us should boast. Jesus comes to do what we could not, to make us who we are not. Have you trusted him? Have you believed on him? Have you repented of your sins and embraced him as your Lord and Savior and King? Because the Bible says in Acts 16, verse 31, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Would you trust him? And when you do repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, then you can stand in awe of both the unilateral power of Jesus and the deep, deep love of Jesus. Because when he shuts down this temple that's actually the size of 26 football fields, he calmly sits down and he teaches. He shows mercy and grace. He tells everyone why he's done what he's done by quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You're abusing my father's house. You are profaning the sacred and mocking the holy. You're making worship all about you. And we might think, that the crowd begins taunting Jesus and booing Jesus, but they don't. Notice here, they're astonished by Jesus. They're taken with Jesus. They can't get enough of Jesus, but the religious leaders are lurking in the shadows in the corners of the temple. They want to destroy Jesus. They fear him. They hate him because his message is that true worship is driven by God's grace alone. And only for God's glory alone. And that's Jesus' message, not just for those people in that day. It's Jesus' message for us today. You see, God doesn't just care that he's worshipped. He cares how he's worshipped. He cares that we live for him by making much of him, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays and Thursdays and Saturdays. He cares about how we treat our spouse and our children at home as much as he does about how we sing in church. He cares about how we respond when somebody cuts us off on the way to work or when somebody wrongs us at work as much as he does about how we, resp how we respond when his word is preached. He cares about what we do with our money during the week as much as he does about what we do and give in the offering on Sunday. And that's because worship isn't just something we do. Worship is who we are. And so every moment of every day, it's all about him. Our lives are to be perpetually driven by His grace alone and, and given to His glory alone. That's what Jesus is teaching His disciples when He gives them two life lessons on Tuesday morning, the very next morning when they pass that same fig tree and Peter says, look, Jesus, it's dead. It's already dead. Just 24 hours later, it's totally dead. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, it is. It's a real-world picture of the dead and fruitless worship in the temple. But again, that tree's destruction 
is also instruction about authentic, fruitful worship, which Jesus says right here is all about faith. Worship is an act of faith, and not just any kind of faith, but notice, faith in God. And not just any faith in God, but faith in what God can do. Because the God who can wither a fig tree from the roots up in 24 hours can also move mountains and throw them into the sea for you and me. Now let me be clear here. Jesus is not saying that we have the inherent power to displace mountains at will. That's not what he's saying. If you're visiting Colorado and you don't like heights like me, Mountains bother you, and so you don't pray then for the Rocky Mountains to be moved into the Pacific Ocean. That's not going to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is giving us a beyond human categories example of God's power. Our God isn't just the God of the improbable. He's the God of the impossible. And the way that I worship and make much of an all-powerful God is to come to Him, to pray to Him, to act, ask Him to act on my behalf, is to pray. You see, the temple was to be a house of prayer that celebrated the power of God over all the nations, but it wasn't. It was a show that said, look at what we've done. Look at the religious, the well-oiled religious machine that we've built. But prayer says so much differently. Prayer says it's not about who I am and what I can do. It's about you, God, and what you can do. Prayer says I can't, God, but you can. Prayer says not my will, God, but yours be done. And when we pray in faith that's driven by the power of God's grace and given to the glory of God's name, He will give us what we ask for. He promises. He will do the impossible. And so I need to ask this morning, are you so confident in God's power, the power of His grace, that you're asking him to do beyond human categories kind of stuff and to move mountains for you. Maybe it's a career thing or a health thing. Maybe it's a a relational thing. Maybe it's a, a marriage or a parenting thing. Maybe it's that you feel helpless as you see your teenager slowly walking away from Jesus and you so badly want to stop them in their tracks like Jesus does here with the temple You can't do that, but God can. The same God who moves mountains and withers fig trees can change your child's heart. Are you asking him to? In faith, believing that he will? There is no problem too big that God cannot solve it. There is no need too great that God cannot meet it. So ask him in faith. He's an infinitely big God who can do infinitely big stuff for us and in us and through us. Because Jesus says in verses 24 and 25 that faith in God, our worship, isn't just expressed through praying, but by forgiving. 
We make much of grace. Not just by loving it and celebrating it and singing about it, but by showing it. By forgiving others in the same way that God has forgiven us. Please, please listen. In nearly 29 years of pastoral ministry, one of the great truths I've learned, a sad truth, is that unforgiveness shrivels up hearts just like this fig tree. Our hearts cannot be taken with God or His grace when they don't reflect God or His grace. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray by saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Listen, it's not that we are forgiven because or when we forgive others. It's that, that, it's that when we've been forgiven, we will forgive others. So is there anyone you are withholding forgiveness from? Is there anything that's been done to you or said about you where you say it's too much, it hurts too bad, it cuts too deep? I just can't forgive. You're right. You can't, but God can. The one who's shown grace to you can work that grace in you and through you. He can move mountains, the mountains of bitterness and vengeance, and throw them into the sea of his forgiveness. That's why Philippians 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Bethel, let's be a people that aren't all about the show of worship. Let's be a people who are all about the authenticity of worship. Let's be a people of great faith in a great God who pray to him to do the impossible and forgive others like we've been forgiven. Let's be those who are driven by God's grace alone and given to God's glory alone. Every moment of every day, let's be 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 people so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Amen. Father, Work in us because the matter of worship dives deep into our hearts this morning. Just like Jesus dove deeply into the heart of the temple. Make us lovers of God. Motivate us in our every day, every moment everywhere, doing everything kind of worship. Motivate us by the grace of God, for the glory of God, your Father. In Jesus' name, amen.